Um, I like a good story. I don't know about you all. Um, it's one of the things that keeps me reading. Susan and I are both readers, but also in the evening, most evenings, we indulge ourselves in um, watching uh, our one television show for the day, and that will be a British mystery. And we love those. Uh, Chief Inspector Morse is my favorite. Susan likes Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Uh, some of you have watched those, and you know they're great stories. The wonderful thing about a story is that stories... Uh, that are about the human condition draw us into them, and we find ourselves in the midst of the story somewhere. Uh, uh, hopefully with a hero or heroine, but sometimes not. We find ourselves other places in the story too, and so we're drawn into them, and, and they become uh, special, to the, uh, special to us. And today, uh, the, the message is going to be from a, a story that Jesus told, a tale of two worshipers. Uh, he told parables, uh, and, and these parables were for that very reason. They pull us into them, and that's what they were designed to do. Now, I put up a picture, I hope. Uh, yes, here. I don't know if you can see it well or not, but it's from the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and you notice there's a little added uh, portion to this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we in the 21st century would do, wouldn't we? If we were there at the feeding of 5,000, uh, uh, we would do that. Some people claim that this would be a true depiction of a 21st century church, the U.S. version of the feeding of 5,000, most likely hyped to the max, streaming live on YouTube, uh, with a sensational tag, something like this, special offer to the first 5,000 this Sunday morning, Right? No one else offers the experience of worship and fellowship like we do. Once you have tasted of our church, all others will pale in comparison. Okay, so, so that's kind of the way we would live this one out, right, in our human condition. The, sto the story was told of Muhammad Ali, who was uh, in my generation one of the greatest athletes and who just recently died and was remembered for that. He was on an airplane, and they ran into some light turbulence, and as they did, this, you know, that little thing... Uh, a light came on and said, please fasten your seat belts. And he ignored it. And so the stewardess came down the aisle and saw, checking uh, seat belts and saw he didn't have his and, and, and uh, asked him to fasten his seat belt. And he boasted, Superman don't need no seat belt. And she calmly replied, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> yeah, right? So in the story of the two worshipers, which we're going to look at, we see a contrast in two people with two different attitudes about life. Jesus purposely draws this extreme comparison. He does that often. He doesn't leave anything in the middle for us to say, well, I'm really right there in the middle. He says it's this or this, right? He wants us to identify with the two ends. And, and, and so uh, his listeners were forced to identify with one or the other, and we are as well. And so, um, the, the, as we look at the text that, that, and begin to read it, uh, in the text it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Notice the context to, to these particular people. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, Pharisees were highly honored in the Jewish community of Jesus' day, highly honored. Uh, they were respectable, very decent people. 
and the tax collector was not because the tax collector collected for uh, imperial Rome uh, who were their oppressors uh, and who had uh, done terrible things to all of them and so they identified the tax collectors with Rome. Maybe some of us had thoughts of, uh, uh, like these two worshipers. That's what we want to see. Um, maybe as we came here today, we had thoughts about other people who might be here worshiping with us, or thoughts about other congregations we passed on the way in, uh, raiding and judging uh, each other. What he tells us is that the first appeared to have everything but lacked one essential, as we'll see in the text. Uh, the Pharisee, uh, as I said, would have been very honored and, and looked up to, but Jesus says that Pharisee lacked one thing. He was satisfied comparatively with his moral uh, uh, morals. He had done nothing uh, distasteful, nothing socially unacceptable. Uh, he was sufficiently religious. He attended worship, said appointed prayers, gave financially. Uh, every good person uh, would have looked up to him. Uh, and he thought all this should give him a certain position before God, above others who might be there with him, uh, that he might get some prominence from God, some, some special uh, thing coming his way uh, that God as God recognized who he was. Yet to Jesus, he still was lacking something. And Jesus will tell us in the text that he left unchanged by his prayer, that he was unchanged by the worship that he experienced that day, and when he left, he says he was not justified. He remained uh, just the same as he was, not right with God. The second seemed to lack uh, everything, the tax collector, but Jesus said he had one thing that was essential. Uh, even though he laid no claim on the Lord, uh, because he felt no moral high ground, uh, no religious credits to, to, to him, uh, Jesus said his prayer was answered, and he went home justified. He went home uh, right with God. And so as we look at the text, we see a contrast in, in, uh, for, with these two attitudes, a contrast in their actions. And again, I've already given a little that away, but in the text it says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. That thought's never entered our minds, right? Not like the robbers or the evildoers or the adulterers or even like this tax collector. He got very specific, the person next to him. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That was above and beyond the law. They only had to fast once a year for a special ceremony, and uh, they only had to get 10% of certain parts of their income, not of everything, of what they had. And so, and so uh, he went above and beyond. But it says the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy uh, normally would mean that he's asking God not to give him what he deserves. He looks at his life and he thinks he deserves God's judgment. And he's begging God not to judge him, but instead to show mercy upon him. The first stood in honor of himself. When we are bigger in our own eyes, God seems smaller uh, to us. Like, for instance, if I take these two quarters and just lay them here uh, on, on this stand, they take uh, their proper place in terms of this whole room. They're, they're very small and insignificant. And uh, if I laid them on the floor, soon you would forget they were even there. But if I take those two, same two quarters and hold them up and bring them closer and closer to my eyes, it can become the place where that's all I see. The room disappears. And a room full of people and other things going on becomes nothing 
once those quarters become greater than what they really are. Seeing ourselves so big in our own vision, we expect to be rewarded for our goodness. And ultimately, we close the door to God's working. We don't do that uh, intentionally sometimes. Uh, we don't, it happens over time. It's not like something that just happens at, uh, instantaneously. But we do. We close the door to God's working. We say to him, take care of something else, Lord. I can handle this. Now, we don't say it in those words, but that's kind of how we start feeling. We start feeling like we can do this. We can take care of this. We can make this happen. But the second stood in humility before God. That's the one thing that the tax collector had that the Pharisee didn't. When God is bigger in our eyes, we become smaller. A young lady was visiting the home of Beethoven one time, and a guy was taking them through. And there was a, a rope around Beethoven's piano that he had played. And this young lady started to raise the rope and go under to play the piano. And the guy stopped her. And she says, I, I suppose every musician wants to play this piano, kind of trying to justify her actions, saying everybody would want to do that. And, and the, uh, the guide said, well, the great Paderewski, who is one, uh, one of the world's greatest pianists, recognized as such, visited here, and others begged him to play, but he refused. He says, I don't feel worthy to play the great master's piano. And again, it's a matter of perspective. The young lady saw herself as what she saw. She concentrated on her own sense of excitement, her own sense of enjoyment, her own sense of fulfillment by playing this piano, uh, all this in her own eyes. So at that moment, her ambition was everything. Paderewski, in contrast, saw Beethoven. And even though Paderewski was one of the greatest pianists in all the world, considered himself as nothing compared to Beethoven, and would not play his piano. And so we also then see in this text a contrast in two alternatives. Uh, there, there are two different directions that can be taken. And, and Jesus says in the text, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus often in his stories with, with uh, uh, very distinct words of exclamation to put a, that exclamation point on the story he just told, and this one is it. The exalted will be humbled. None of us can escape the spiritual nature of life. We live in a physical world, and we are overwhelmed by the physical world, but the essence of life is not the physical. The essence of life is the spiritual there's a danger in our modern world that everywhere we're taught to rely on image. Uh, in hyperspace, we can pretend to be anyone we want to be. So we easily become counterfeit. Back on earth, we can define ourselves by our building, by our cafe, our adult and youth and children's ministries, the work we do in our community, or the work we do beyond our own borders. And all those things are good. I'm not saying any of those things aren't good. But when they, like the quarters, become so much in our eyes that we lose sight of the one who's doing it, then we have a problem. We can be satisfied with our own inventions. The human mind is a powerful thing, and God created that way, and we thank him that he created us so powerfully. And the human spirit is vast, yet we are created with a capacity for God. 
who is infinitely more than any of us can claim. And since there's no valid spirituality apart from Jesus Christ, without him we remain uninformed, undisciplined, underachieved, regardless of our hype, regardless of how we see ourselves. Before we accept the work of God's Spirit, we must see the impoverishment of our own spirituality. We must sense a need for him to open our lives to him. So God's work of humbling begins in our lives. God will do something at the very place that we think we are the greatest to show us we're not. Uh, one time a guest speaker spoke at a, at a charitable function for, uh, for an organization. And, and at the end, uh, uh, somebody gave him a check for what he had done. And, and feeling good about his speech and the importance of who he was, uh, he ma- magnanimously uh, gave the check back to them and refused to take it, saying quite pretentiously, put it to some other good use. Um, and the host said, uh, well, we started a, a new special fund today. Can we put it in that? And the, and, the, and the guest speaker said, uh, well, what is it? What is this special fund? And the host said, it's to get a better speaker next year. <laughs> God will show us we are not as fast, not as smart, not as successful as we think we are. And in the process, challenge us at the heart of who we think we are, at the very place we think is our greatest strength. The humble, in contrast, will be exalted. True humility sees God as he is. That's real humility. That God is omnipotent, all-powerful. That God is omniscient. He knows everything. That God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. That God is holy, totally different from anything in creation. And that God is sovereign. He rules over everything. The Lord of all of creation. The Lord of the universe and certainly the Lord of our lives. True humility sees ourselves as we are, finite, fallen, dependent, broken, therefore empty and in need of filling by him with what he alone can fill our lives. This sense of emptiness creates a desire to be filled. Filled, uh, uh, we're told by science that nature deplores a vacuum. We'll always try to fill a vacuum. And if we can see the vacuum in our own lives, then we will desire for it to be filled by God. The God's Spirit will then inform us and discipline us, and he will accomplish his mission through us. Carl Jung uh, once told a story about uh, a, a rabbi uh, and, 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 a, and, a, and a seeker, and the seeker asked the rabbi, how come in the olden days God would show himself to people, but today nobody ever sees God? And uh, the rabbi said, because nowadays, nobody can bow low enough. Bowing not as a part of religious show, or just doing what others do, or what they expect us to do, but bowing because we know the presence of the living God, and the presence of the living God we can do no else. Just so awesome is the presence of God that we can barely lift our heads uh, to greet him. The story is told in the Old Testament of Naaman, who was a powerful commander of King Aram's army just north of Israel at that time and one of their major enemies. 
And Naaman had leprosy. He knew that that would be the end of, of all that his life meant. He would have to go to some isolated place and he would lose everything. So one of his servant girls who was from Israel told him that there was a prophet Elijah who could heal him. So he asked Aram, the king, if he could go. And he says, go. And so he, he comes to Elijah's place and, and Elijah doesn't come out. A servant comes out. And right away, uh, Nahum is ticked. I mean, he's really ticked. Uh, he's the great Naaman, second in command in, in, of, this, uh, of this great nation. And, and, and Elijah won't even come out and say hi to him. He sends a servant. And then the servant tells him, Elijah's word is, you go bathe in the River Jordan and you'll be healed. And he looks at the River Jordan. He says, it's just a muddy creek. We have much greater rivers in our land. And so he just really gets huffy and puffy and too proud to do what he's asked. He says, I've come all this way to be insulted. And the text tells us, so he named and turned and went off in a rage. But his servants got hold of him. And they talked to him. And they convinced him to take a chance. They humbled him. And, and he went out and washed in the Jordan. And he was cleansed. And he came out glorifying God. Healing begins when each of us admit our humanity and our need for God and see God's greatness. When we are humbled before him, we receive mercy and forgiveness. And in that mercy and forgiveness, we can show mercy, grace, and compassion to others. It's our offenses that are the reason Jesus died upon the cross. He came to heal this broken world, and we are that world. And we should be humbled by the fact that God, the God universe, would come into our world and die for us to take our place. It's never a right time to stand on our own shoulders in all of our own spiritual prowess, praying in satisfaction, gloating, yes, Jesus fed 5,000 once, but we feed thousands regularly in worship, in our groups, in streaming webpage, in Twitter, uh, in mission work, which we do, and the work we support elsewhere and more. Instead, we should kneel before God in brokenness, seeking his mercy. The scripture success that suggests that repentance is turning around and leaving behind everything else that was our lives before we met Jesus and learning to live differently, living in a different direction than what we would have gone. And now is the time for us to do just that. We're left with a great moment in our lives and we need to look forward to what God will do, but we need to look forward to what God will do and not just our own plans for who we will become. Let us pray.